Well, uh, thank you for um, your participation today in singing along with our children and celebrating the Lord Jesus. I'm always very thankful to hear parents and kids and grandparents singing together. And um, one of the reasons that we do that is because we want uh, children to uh, be engaged in these songs and learning God's Word and singing them. Uh, because, as we know, singing God's Word is a, is a great memory tool. And, uh, and so very thankful to hear us all singing together. Um, we are in the book of Ezra today, and uh, we are continuing our story in the book of Ezra. And we're really coming to what we would call, I would call, a chapter break in the story. Because at the end of chapter 6 we transition into chapter 7 with uh, a new um, act in the story, as uh, you might think of it that way. From chapter 1 through the end of chapter 6, we have the first group of the Jews returning to Jerusalem. They are traveling in, under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel is leading the people back to do what um, God had ordained and called them to do, which was to rebuild the temple. And so we have watched this amazing process unfold in chapters 1 through the end of chapter 6, as we will conclude that today, of God's amazing power and His amazing glory on display as He sent the people back um, after 70 years of captivity to rebuild the temple, to reinstitute the worship of his name in the place that we call the promised land. And it's been a great journey. And as we look at this passage today, as we see the end of this first act of the story, we want to focus on the glory of God and the way in which he, by his power, always finishes or completes his work. He always finishes or completes his work. Now, just as a review, since the last time I preached here, which was two weeks ago, um, we have seen through this process, as we do even in the Christian life, that as God calls us to do um, things for his glory and, and honor, we oftentimes see opposition rise up. And we have seen opposition rise up as the Jews have returned to rebuild the temple. Opposition from the enemies, opposition from the the local authorities, uh, ways in which really we would say Satan is trying to impact the work of God in this time in history, as he does in our time of history, where God is calling us to do things for his glory, and Satan is trying to disrupt and and dismantle and uh, keep us from doing what God has called us to do. And you would say that the Jews learned their lesson because early in the story, the, the opposition caused them to really put a, a hold on the rebuilding process. They were in disobedience to God by being afraid of this opposition. But in the second wave of opposition, we see them persevere. And they persevered through the opposition. They were faithful through um, the, the, the Persian officials coming to them and, and questioning them. And, and what we see in the culmination of that perseverance is fruitfulness. They were fruitful in their obedience 
to complete the work of the temple. And that's where we are today. And, and, and as we see the finished work today, let us give all the praise and the glory to God, for he is the one that completed this work. He is the one that brought this by his sovereign providence to bring about all of his purposes, all the resources that they need, all the energy for the people. He brought it all so that he might be glorified for his great work. And so as we begin today, we're going to look at the work that is finished And so if you're taking notes, the first thing would be the work that is finished. And the direction of our story thus far has been that the word of God has carried on the people of God to do the work. That it's the word of God that carried on the people to finish the work. They were not rebuilding the temple by their own desires. They were rebuilding the temple because God had commanded them to do so. Now, sure, they wanted to escape captivity, but think about it. God allowed them to escape the captivity of 70 years under Babylonian rule. And what did he do? He sent them back to the promised land. Their desire, obviously, was to return to their homelands. But they were operating on the word of God, which was driving them forward to accomplish his purposes. And they had learned their lesson about disobeying the word of God. I mean, the very 70 years of captivity was the result of their disobedience. So you would have no doubt that in that 70 years they had recalled over and over again why they were slaves in Babylon because of their willful disobedience to God's commands. So when that rescue came, when that rescue, when that freedom and liberation came, you, would, you were going to be uh, confident, as we are confident, that the Jews were going to obey the word of God. And I love how Ezra says this in chapter 6, verses 14. It says that the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished their building by the decree of God, the God of Israel, and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. It's so interesting to me that here Ezra is acknowledging the fact that the building project saw its completion because of the word of God. By the obedience of God's word, the people were doing what God commanded them to do, and the work of God flourished. It's the same way that we see throughout Scripture as the Word of God is highlighted as the thing by which God works in through His power and His might. Like in Genesis chapter 1, we know that the Word of God is what created all things out of nothing. That literally God spoke words and they came into existence. And throughout the history of God's work in the world, he has brought about his purposes through the word of God. And so it should not surprise us that Ezra is highlighting that it was through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah that the project continued on, right? Because disobedience to God's word actually halted the project. But as the prophets came on the scene and they declared the word of God... The building continued and the work was completed. 
Now imagine for a second a contractor coming to your house to do a remodel. And I would encourage you to consider Coleman and Owen Construction as a contractor. I should be paid for that shameless plug. Imagine that he comes and he says, listen, we have the blueprints. Uh, We're going to take care of of everything. We have the materials here. Uh, We have able-bodied workers to complete this remodel. But we really need you to invite your preacher over here so that he might preach through the process. That would seem strange, right? Because in in a secular world, the Word of God doesn't carry forth that kind of weight and importance. But when we are operating in the glory of God and the purposes of God, it is very much necessary that the Word of God is the fuel and the motivation for us to accomplish His purposes. He is calling us to do things by His Word, and we are called to live according to His Word in obedience so that those things can be accomplished. So think for an example then, or think back with me, How the Word of God has established this work. In Ezra chapter 1, we're reminded, verse 1, that by the mouth of Jeremiah, that by by the mouth of of Jeremiah, uh, the words that he spoke, that they might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. We looked at that. That the Word of God was declared by Jeremiah... And therefore, the word fueled King Cyrus, this pagan king, to operate or to, uh, to act upon God's word. Well, what did Jeremiah say? Well, if you're taking notes, in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, this is what is being referred to by Ezra. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to that place from which I sent you into exile. That was the word of God promised to the people of Israel or to the Jewish people the remaining tribes of of Judah that was establishing the correct path by which they were to take. They had deviated from the path set before them to follow the commands of God to honor Him, and they were facing consequences. So as we think about the way that God's Word drives us in our lives as believers, we must understand that God's Word is what sets the correct path for us. It is the pathway of stone laid before us that is clearly marked out for us to follow if we are to be people of God. It is the established direction by which we are to take and it has established boundaries by which would keep us safe in God's good graces. When we choose to walk away from that path, go a different direction, we are stepping away from the purposes and the plan that God has for us. And there will always, we will face consequences 
for that. But as we walk along the path, we will enjoy the goodness that God has provided and we will see His amazing and unexplainable work. That's what the people, the God's people saw as they were driven by God's word to go back to the place that he had promised them. And we saw a sovereign acts through this pagan king to uh, manipulate and to prepare and to plan so that the people of God would have all the, the resources necessary to build the temple again in Jerusalem. They were going empty-handed and God provided through pagans and unbelievers all that they needed because God's word sets the correct path. Secondly, God's word redirects our steps. God's word redirects our steps. As I said earlier, we saw the disobedience because of fear of man. The fear of man whereby they were driven to fear the locals and fear the, the opposition that they faced. And they failed God and fell into disobedience. They stepped off the path that God had set for them. And because they stepped off the path, they faced great consequences. Many years ago, I went on a a hike in uh, Arkansas where we had to follow, uh, obviously, a, a, a trail or a path and, and when you go hiking, you always want to make sure that, that the trail that you're following has good trail markers. The trail markers are uh, usually spray painted on trees along the pathway. And it's a, and it's a, it's a, a very uh, obvious color demarcation that, that is separate from anything else so that you can always follow the path. And as I've taken my kids and my daughters particularly on these hikes with me, I always say, now you always have to look ahead and you always have to be looking for the next marker so that you know that you're on the right path. There's no pavement, there's no, there's no signs, there's literally a tree with a spray paint on it. And you look for the next one and you look for the next one. And on one particular trip, I, I didn't take my daughters with me, but there was a, a, an incline of over 750 degrees above sea level in, in, in our hike. We had to hike up this amazing amount of, 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 uh, of inclination. And it, it was a difficult path. That, and I mean, we stopped six or seven times. Our heart was beating out of our ears because it was so strenuous on our bodies. And I, I couldn't help but think about that as in relationship to the, the difficult path that we oftentimes face. God sets this path before us, and we're looking ahead, and we go, Lord, I don't know that I'm going to be able to take care of this. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. But God never says that the path is going to be level or it's going to be straight. He just says, I'm providing the path. Stay on it, and I'm going to give you the resources that you need to get up there. So don't be afraid. Don't fear, just stay on the path and you will be in the, and experience the goodness that God has set before us. And the beautiful thing about God and his love is that he loves us even when he has to redirect our steps. He's gracious and merciful when we do step off the path. Or when we, like some people that I hike with, go, you know, I think we could get there quicker by going that direction. And I'm like, and I'm just like a, 
you know, I'm geared for like stay on the road, stay on the path, follow the directions. And, and, and people that I've gone hiking with in the past have wanted to take shortcuts. And it never ends well. It never ends well. And God is gracious to love us when we choose to step off the path in sin and disobedience. And we saw this with Ezra, or the people of, 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 of God's people, that they were uh, choosing to be afraid of those that were opposing them, and they stepped off the path. God sent in the prophets. The prophets declared their disobedience very publicly and openly. And by God's grace, they repented and they turned back to God and his purpose for them in rebuilding the temple. And thirdly, in the finishing of this work, we see God's word brings it to completion. God's word brings it to completion. Through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, the work prospered. Not through the building materials did it prosper. Not through the work of the men and, 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 and the workers did it prosper. But through the prophesying of God's word did the work prosper. Because the word of God is like a ferry that transports us from one port to the next. As we step out in faith and drive our car upon a boat that's floating on water. Trusting that it will hold up the loved ones that are in our vehicle with us. And it is safely taking us from the beginning to the end. That's what God's word does for us. It brings it to completion. Brings what to completion? God's work in our lives. God's work here in this story that we've learned was the, the finishing of the temple. The completion of this project didn't always go exactly the way the people had planned, but here they are celebrating, they are filled with joy in what has happened as they, have see, as they see the work of God coming to a close. It says in verse 15 that this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. They finished the building. And how did they do it? By the decree of God. Notice that. Notice that it says that they they finished the building by the decree of God through the prophesying of God's word. But it was God's word and his purposes and decrees that brought it to completion. And in the same way, Christian, we can celebrate and, and, and rejoice in the power of God that is always completed in our lives. That as we live in obedience to God's word, striving for holy life in the Christian life, God brings about fruitfulness and brings us to the end of life, trusting in him. It's oftentimes not recognized in our lives that, and we have to be reminded that day by day, God is changing us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be more holy than the day we were before. And it's like watching your kid grow up. 
You know, you have the family member come over that you haven't seen in six weeks or six months, and they go, man, your kids are growing up so fast. You're like, they are? The only reason I know my kids are growing up is when I have to go buy more clothes because they've outgrown their shoes. But that person that you haven't seen in a long time can recognize it right off the bat because that, that there's this gap. And oftentimes as believers, we, we don't see that God is changing us and molding us day by day. Because we're looking in the mirror and we know the struggles that we have and we sometimes don't realize it. But other people in our lives can see the holiness growing in us. If we belong to Jesus... That if we live, as we live in community as a church, we can see the, the shedding of sin and the, the, the repenting in the Christian life. We can see this overarching picture and we can rejoice that God is bringing our lives to a completion, to a crescendo of holiness. Let me share with you a passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, but we, all, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. There's our salvation. That God chose us to be saved as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification, he says, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear that. God chose you to be saved by allowing you to understand the gospel, by opening your mind to believe and trust in Jesus, that he brought you through with the sanctification by the Spirit and the belief and the truth, so that, he says, you may obtain the glory of God. He's not saying you're going to get close to the glory one day as you see Jesus. You will obtain that. That's the completed work that God promises us when we trust in him. Philippians 1, 6 is another one. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God promises this by his word and he will bring it to a close. So, Friend, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart if you don't appear to reflect Jesus the way that you want to day by day. Understand that God is at work in all his people, in all true, genuine believers of Jesus. And he is shaping us and molding us. And if it's a trial that comes into your life, as difficult as that might be, understand that that trial is purposed by God so that he can make you more holy. And that when you join a church and you find a church family, and you find it difficult at times to uh, maybe be friendly or close to some of those church family members, don't point fingers today, Know that those people are providentially in your spiritual lives to make you more holy. And to bring about God's purposes in you, no matter how difficult or different your personalities might be. Because God's work is what brings it to completion. Secondly, not only is the work of God finished, but the work of God was dedicated 
In verses 16 down to 18, it says that the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it's written in the book of Moses. You'll see throughout the Old Testament the practice of dedication. There are really two words in the Hebrew language that are oftentimes translated dedication. And it, it usually refers to the, the setting aside of something given to us by God for his purposes. You can see throughout scripture such examples like people dedicated to the Lord. Hannah dedicated her son Samuel to the service of the Lord. And the word there was to make a vow or to dedicate him to the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a stipulation given by Moses to the people that you were to dedicate your home and that you had a military exemption if you had not dedicated your home. You could actually leave the battlefield and go back and dedicate your home to the Lord. Why was that important? Because what we do in dedicating is we are saying this thing was given to us by God and we are setting it apart for the work and the glory of God and God alone. It was important to God to acknowledge that gift. It was important for the person to acknowledge the giver and the purpose of why the gift was given. We see that Continuing on through the story of God's people, the altar of God and the tabernacle was dedicated by Moses. Solomon dedicated the first temple that was built, and now the second temple here in Ezra was also dedicated. Just so you know, in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon was able to dedicate the, 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 the grand temple that he built was something around 120,000 lambs. Here in our text today, which speaks to the meagerness of the remnant of, of God's people, they only offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, and 400 lambs. That gives you some perspective at the size of this small band of people that were trying to accomplish God's purposes. But again, understand that dedication was an acknowledgement of what God had done, that, it was, that he had given these things intended for his glory, and that this was an act of worship, a vow of purpose to be used for God's glory. Another word, that second word that I mentioned in the Hebrew language, is oftentimes translated consecration. So sometimes the word is dedication, sometimes it's consecration. And they're used interchangeably and synonymously. And the word consecration, oftentimes, it, first of all, it has the root of the word holiness in the Hebrew language. And it means to set something apart for holiness. Setting it apart from the secular world to be used by God for his purposes. So you've probably been in a church that 
dedicated children to the Lord. To be honest, redemption, we started off doing dedications to children. And we stopped doing it. And I want to explain to you why. One of the main reasons that we stopped dedicating children to the Lord is because we, one, did not want it to appear as if it was some ordinance of the church that God had never commanded us to accomplish or to practice. There are two ordinances in the, that we recognize in the Baptist church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we did not want there to be any confusion as to dedicating our children to, Lord, to the Lord as this formal practice because God never commanded that for the church uh, to, to practice. But secondly, we wanted to communicate that dedicating something to the Lord is not a one-time thing. When we dedicate something to the Lord, we should do that every day. Every day we should wake up Say, Lord, the home that you've given me and the children that I have, they're for your purposes, they're by your gracious hand. And so I commit them to you and acknowledge that I will do in everything in my power that they may honor you and glorify you. This should be a daily commitment. Not some ceremony that we do before the church. A commitment that we make before God every day. So I trust that this week when Shelly is induced into labor and, and she has little Noah, that, that, that they will be not only thankful and gracious to uh, love this child, but that they are already committed to dedicate this child to the Lord. That he would grow up one day and serve and maybe even stand in this pulpit or another pulpit and preach the gospel if that's God's plan for him. Because dedicating the, the, something is, is acknowledging the gift and recognizing God's purposes in it, setting it apart for holiness. And, and, and believe it or not, church, this is what God has called all believers to. For example, Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's dedication. You don't have to come up here and tell me, Pastor, I present my body to the Lord as a holy and living sacrifice, acceptable to God. I trust that that is your life. That is your commitment when you trust in Jesus and believe in Him. But in this passage, not only do we recognize this dedication, but secondly, we recognize the jubilation, this joy that they have. We see this actually three times in this story as they gather together for the, uh, the dedicating uh, service or celebration. The Bible tells us that they are full of joy. And then again later on in verses 19 through 22, it tells us twice that at the Passover celebration, they are full of joy. And the Jews were full of joy because they had seen God do the impossible once again in their lives. And from a sense of awe and worship, they rejoiced. Seventy years from, of captivity, opposition from outsiders, a lack of resources. None of those things stopped God from doing unbelievable things. And so their joy in the Lord began by reflecting on the character and the power and the purposes of God. 
I think this is a lesson for us in the church today. When we feel like we lack joy, the question we must ask ourselves is, am I reflecting on all of God's amazing power and majesty and glory that He has revealed throughout all history? We sang a song earlier, Behold our God, seated at the throne, that we are shaken and moved and stirred by His majesty and His glory and all the amazing things that He's accomplished. This should lead us to joy. That we reflect upon Him and all He has done. And all, he, all of His character and His attributes that is revealed to us. And we rejoice in Him. So I would say then that true joy begins when we consider a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because we can have full assurance of faith that Christ has saved us. And we can live in joy that transcends our, 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 our circumstances that we're facing today, tomorrow, in the past, and the future. All those things we can enjoy and experience when we meditate and consider our relationship with God through Jesus. Peter says this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He's talking to a group of persecuted believers. And what does he say? That though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him, you believe and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Where does the joy come from? Understanding your belief in Him. Understanding that you love Him. That you have relationship with Him. Solomon says it this way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his labor or his toil. This also, he says, I saw from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He is given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon tells us that the one who pleases God has been given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And what's interesting is he makes the comparison to the sinner. The sinner who lives his life laboring and toiling, finding or seeking to find joy and never finding true joy. Finding happiness in temporary pleasures that always fade and leave you wanting more. He says, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his labor. But the problem is, is that when you have no relationship with God, you are constantly trying to fill your satisfaction and your enjoyment of life only to realize it is an empty, bottomless pit that is never filled because you are truly made to enjoy God and Him forever. 
And because you are lacking in those things, you have, fall, you have found false gods and temporary gods that never do what God can do in your life. And that is give you true joy and satisfaction. Which is why Solomon says it is a vanity and a striving after the wind. These people of God found joy because they had lived in obedience and saw the completion of God's work. Their joy was seeing the word of God manifested in fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness reflected on their obedience to follow God's word and accomplish what God had called them to accomplish. It's in the same way that if you're bold enough to go and share the gospel with someone and you see that person confess Christ, you are full of joy in seeing God change a sinner's heart to believe and trust in him. You realize it's nothing that you did. You were just obedient to take the message and yet the, 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 the spiritual transformation that occurs brings you joy because you were obedient to God's word and he brought about his purposes. I found this quote by Thomas Brooks where he writes, God has made a separation between joy and idleness, between assurance and laziness. And therefore it is impossible for you to bring these two together that God has put so far asunder. Assurance and joy are choice gifts that Christ gives to laborious Christians. The lazy Christian has his mouth full of complaints when the active Christian has his heart full of comforts. So may you find joy, church, in a relationship with Jesus. Meditate on what he has accomplished for you. Recognize his unfailing grace and mercy when you step off the path. And don't strive for happiness in the world. Strive for joy in the Lord that only is found in him. And finally, God's work is remembered. In verses 19 through 22, we see the progression and the final purpose of God's plan for the Jews come to fruition as the institution of the feasts comes to its completion by the work of the, or the observing of the Passover. On the 14th day, it says, of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the Jews, the Passover was one of the most important feasts and festivals that they had. It was a week-long celebration that continued from the Passover, which was really one day, but it was connected to and tagged to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which was seven more days, oftentimes referred to just the Passover as an eight-day festival celebrating the first exodus that God had brought about. Now we are celebrating in this story the second exodus. The first exodus of captivity was from the Egyptians. The second one was from the Babylonians. At the conclusion of that exodus, God established his covenant with his people. He called them to build him a house after their roamings uh, and, and wanderings in the wilderness. 
They set up a tabernacle, which eventually led to a temple that was destroyed because of their disobedience. And here we are again at the second exodus, where we see obedience and disobedience, and ultimately God allowing a temple to be rebuilt and reestablished worship to ensue. We know that the Passover feast that was commanded by God was a reflection on the power of God and his rescue of his people. We know the story of of Moses and the Egyptians and the the ten plagues of Egypt and the the final and and most important of the plagues being the death of the people in in, in Egypt and and that the the salvation for the, the, the Israelites there in Egypt was the command of God to kill a lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts of that home with which they were dwelling. And the promise was that if by faith you, you slaughter a lamb and you pour the blood, po- you, you smear the blood on the doorposts, that the wrath of God that would enter into Egypt would pass over your home and spare the, the, the death that was promised to the firstborn sons of Egypt and you would be saved and you would be rescued. And by faith, the people did that. They slaughtered the lamb. They covered the doorpost. They, rest, they were rescued. The, the wrath of God passed over their home. They were able to escape Egypt. And then God instituted this remembrance. This, this yearly remembrance whereby they would recall God's faithfulness. Remembering that his work had been accomplished. And now, once again, the second exodus has happened. They are celebrating the Passover, being reminded that God is faithful to his promises. And most importantly, in that Passover feast, we understand now as the church that the shedding of the blood of the Lamb all points us forward to Jesus. That the blood on the doorpost that was smeared by faith may have sounded like a very silly thing to do. But in believing God's word and believing God's promises, they trusted him and they trusted his word and they slaughtered the lamb and the lamb was their method of salvation. It was the way in which they were saved. Pointing us forward to Jesus, who was oftentimes considered um, in, in metaphorical language, the door by which someone would enter into and be saved. The sheep gate. Many different sayings that John gives us just to remind us that Jesus is the way in which we are saved by the shedding of blood that only came through him. John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus early in his ministry and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so we understand then, church, that as God's work is finished and completed, and God's work is dedicated, set aside for his purposes, we also understand that God's work is remembered. That we have a responsibility to, as the church, come into worship, celebrating with joy, remembering all that Jesus Christ has accomplished. That they sat around, the Jews sat around at a table enjoying the Passover feast with the lamb and with different uh, 
elements of the Passover feast that reminded them of their journey through the wilderness, of their disobedience, of God's faithfulness. They had bitter herbs, they had fruit jellies, they had the the roasted lamb, they had all these different things, and they all pointed to Jesus. They all pointed to the sacrifice that he made, the rescue and the liberation that was provided. So in other words, we would say that God provided the, the provision of Jesus just as he provided the provision of escape for the people of Israel the Jews in Ezra's day, which reminds us of Hebrews chapter 9. It says, He, meaning Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So as we come to the conclusion of this great work of the Lord Let's be reminded that ultimately all these things have occurred so that we might consider and remember Jesus. That this second exodus was a liberating act of God that points us to the great liberating act of God that was performed in Jesus. He's the one that liberates us in what I would call the final exodus. Not slaves to Egypt. Not slaves to Babylon, slaves to sin. Liberated by not just a man, but by the God-man, who was sinless in every way. He entered, as Hebrews says, once and for all into the holy places, not by blood from goats and calves, but by his own blood, the necessary and sufficient blood that's willing, that's, that's, that was capable and able to secure an eternal redemption by covering sin. And so all these things point us forward to the great God whom we serve, who has provided all that we need to worship Him. And I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today to find hope in Him. That God is at work in our lives. That He is bringing about change. And if you don't believe and trust in Him, that you can be saved by His work today. And so I would invite you to believe in Jesus. I would invite you to trust in Him. I would invite you to understand that he has provided all that was necessary for your sins to be forgiven, for the wrath of God to pass over you when you believe and trust in him. That he has provided the straight way. It's a narrow way. It's a difficult path, but it's a clear path, a path that he's laid out for us in his word to follow and guide and direct you throughout your lives. Believe and trust in him today. And the Bible says he will save you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for all that you have done to reveal 
yourself through the, the Holy Scriptures. And even as we come to this passage in Ezra, we can see you, Jesus. We can see you and we worship you and all that you have accomplished through the lives of your people in this, in this time in history. And these words are important for us, Lord, because they drive us to understand all that you remind us of your great work and they bring us to celebrate you. So, Father, in a second, as we sing about your Son, I pray that we would sing with joy in our hearts, reflecting on all that you have accomplished through him. And we would live our lives this week full of joy, no matter our circumstances, because you are God and you have proven yourselves as Lord and King over all, and you are worthy of our worship. And so, God, I ask that you would receive our worship now, and it would be a sweet aroma to your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.